is Eliana, and I will be reading from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power, the heir of the spirit, that is now at work, and the sons of the disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the book. Like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Eliana, so much for reading God's Word for us. Uh, As Johnny mentioned, we have an abundance of children with us this morning. Uh, We always, always, always love having kids here in service, and they are always welcome um, every Sunday, any Sunday. Uh, But on holiday weekends, we do what we call Worship Together Sundays, and we provide children's ministries only up through uh, uh, kindergarten, actually only up through four years old, five years old. And so we have an abundance of children in here this morning, like Eliana, who did a great job. So thank you so much. Uh, Bow your heads with me and ask for God's help as we open this passage and understand what he might have for us. God, you do have something for us. Your word is living and active. And even if we've heard Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, maybe especially over and over again in our lives, bring a fresh word this morning, Lord. May I decrease as you increase. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, maybe not for the kids, but for anyone in the room who is old enough, I bet you can tell me exactly where you were in 2001 on September 11th. Next week, right, is the the 21 year, somehow, the 21 year anniversary of the attack on our country, 9-11, and so I've been thinking a lot about it. You know, it was a Tuesday morning, I was in school, and I was walking into my classroom, and and a classmate of mine said to the teacher next door, it was like these doors right here, I could take you right where I was, and I'm walking in, and I hear my classmate say to the teacher next door, the World Trade Centers just got attacked. You know, in a similar way, but a, a totally different moment in my life, uh, this was years ago. I was not on staff here. I was working at our Brookside campus, but for some reason, I had had a meeting at, at Black Dog, and I love Black Dog. I'm there all the time now, right? But I, this was a totally different part of the city, uh, and I was sitting at Black Dog Coffee Shop in 2015 when my dad called me and let me know that my Nana had passed away. I could, I could take you to the exact table I was sitting at seven years ago when I got that call. Or totally different, right, and, and a different mood here as well, right? Like Ashley and I, we've got these three beautiful boys, Bevan, Owen, and Ethan. And, and like in my mind right now, I can, I can replay the second-by-second second brilliance of when they first came into the world and I got to meet them. 
right? It's just life-changing, transformational. And the point is, with all of these and more, the point is that there are moments in life, both good moments and hard moments, that function with such a strong before this moment and then after this moment. And some of these moments are collective. 9-11, if you were living then and you remember it, we lived that together, each and every single one of us. The JFK assassination for a different generation, or the first time that we walked on the moon. Apparently, we're going back to the moon. Did you hear this in the news this week? I love it, right? These are collective moments of before and after. Others of these are individual. They're your moments. They're my moments. The birth of a child, the loss of a loved one, receiving an unexpected promotion at work or a raise that you didn't know was coming. But whether collective or personal, one unique thing about these moments is that they are not typically something that we plan for at least not very much. Like you read a book on being a parent, but then you became a parent and you realized how much you didn't know, right? Like these before and after moments, we actually, some of them we can't plan for at all. We certainly don't control (laughs) moments like this. Often we don't do very much at all. Rather, they happen to us, don't they? And another interesting layer to me is that these moments in our lives often change us more than anything else. The transformation that we experience during the after of these before and after moments can be so extraordinary. And church, there's good news in the midst of this this morning because grace works like this. Grace functions like this. The Apostle Paul in this passage, what he's saying to us is is that grace happens to you. Grace happens to you. To you. I mean, this is what he says in Ephesians 2.8, is it not? For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is what? It is not your own doing. Not your own doing. Rather, it is the gift of God. Well, there it is. Grace happens to you. But with the Apostle Paul, in the best ways, right, there's more to unpack. And so let's go on a journey together this morning through these verses, through this passage, and see all that grace does to us. And the first thing that grace does to us, as grace happens to you as it happens to me, is that it raises us from death to life. Grace raises us from death to life. And I want to ask, right, before grace happened to you, how bad were you? Before grace happened to you, how bad were you? Now, my heart and maybe your heart too, the gut response to that question is, well, yeah, I know I wasn't great. I know I was pretty bad, but it wasn't that bad, right? Like maybe, maybe I would have gotten a C plus. Like before grace happened to me, how bad was I? That's how my heart wants to answer that question. But friends, is that how our passage answers that question? No. And, And I just wonder, do we have ears to hear this morning? Verses 1 and 2, let's see again. And you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of there, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Church, the answer to my question, before grace, how bad were you? The answer is way worse than you think. It's it's not a C plus, it's an F minus. But only if that F minus is the reality of the fact that, as Paul says here, we were what? We were dead. That's probably worse than you thought. 
That's certainly worse than I thought. But it's what he says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now the words in this verse, trespasses and sins, these are synonyms that refer to conscious and willful disobedience to God and his ways. We were walking, that's what Paul says here as well, we were walking in our sins. We were walking in our trespasses and friends, walking in sins and trespasses, walking in a path or on a path that is a willful disobedience to God and his ways. That pathway only ends one place. It may not end there automatically. It may not seem like it's going to end there, but if you're walking that path in your sins and your trespasses, if you are walking the pathway of willful disobedience against God and his ways, it only ends in one spot, death. And you were dead. You were dead. And I know it's not fun to talk about death. I know that that's not fun. But, but for the good news to be surpassingly good, what do you have to do first? For the good news to be surpassingly good, you have to reckon in full with just how bad the bad news is. And friends, it's bad. It's not a C plus. It's not a C minus. It's an F minus death. That's where Paul starts, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, but, but if, that's the, if that's the really, really bad news, do you want to know how good the really, really good news is? The beginning of verse 4, what does it say? But God. <laughs> but God. And there is no combination of two words in any language that is better than but God. Oh, it was bad, but then but God, right? We were dead, but God. There was trespasses and sins, and we were walking a bad path, but God. We were in willful disobedience, but God. But God. But God. But God. Follow it with me, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I don't deserve that love, do you? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't alive yet. That hadn't happened. We're dead, and he still loves us with the great love, right? And what did he do? He made us alive. We were dead, but he made us alive because grace takes us. It raises us from death to life. By grace, you have been saved. And raises us up with him and actually seats us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Or sits him, seats us with himself, the Father, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen, but God. This is the good news. This is what grace does, right? Raised us up is this idea of resurrection. Raised us up is this idea that God the Father, he reaches down into the tomb of our lives, because we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And what does he do? He grabs us out of there. He resurrects us and raises us to new life. And he actually seats us in the heavenly places with his son, Jesus. I don't deserve that place. You don't deserve that place. But that is what grace does to you. It raises you from death to life. But that's not all. That's the first thing. It raises you from death to life, but it also rescues you from wrath to mercy. Grace raises you from death to life, but it also rescues you, rescues me, rescues us from wrath to mercy. We're going to look again at verses 1 through 3 of this passage because I want you to follow the flow of Paul's thought into this idea of wrath. So follow along with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead, right? 
We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of air. We were following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And friends, we, we were among the sons of disobedience. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Church, the reality is that we are not only dead before the gift of grace, but we are guilty too. Guilty. That is what is meant behind the word wrath in this verse, in Ephesians 2.3. And, and I know, wrath in English, it sounds like an angry person, right? Like wrath is the person that you cut off on the highway, and you didn't mean it, but they thought you meant it, and you, you make eye contact, that's the mistake you made, is to look at them, right? And the look on their face, and they might be making a certain motion too, right? That's wrath for us. That's wrath. It's intense, over-the-top, I might, you know, do something to hurt you if I could get my hands on you, anger. That's wrath for us. It's primarily an emotion. But biblically, wrath is actually more about judgment than emotion. It's more about judgment than emotion. We are, all of us, children of God because we originated in Him. He is the creator of all things. So we originated in Him, we were created in Him, but because of our willful sins and trespasses, we are not only dead, we are under God's judgment. We are guilty before Him. Children of wrath, that's what Paul is getting at here. And I know that even with the nuance that wrath is more about judgment than emotion, I know that that's still not a popular idea today. And that's because we, we think that we are pretty good and lovable people if you just give us a chance, right? Like, how bad were you before grace? Well, I wasn't that bad. No, actually, you were dead. Like, we think that we're good and lovable people if you just give us a chance. And so, therefore, the wrath of God is not a topic that you hear about very much anymore, even in churches. But church, it is present in our passage this morning, and we must sit in it at least for a moment. And you know, I think if we're to actually be honest with ourselves, and if we really paid attention to how we live, I actually believe that we would agree with the Bible's assessment that we are deserving of God's judgment. I mean, just just for a moment, imagine with me that you had a magic tape recorder. And this magic tape recorder, it it lives on your neck every moment of every day for three months. Now, it's not on all the time, thanks, thank goodness, right? But this tape recorder turns on, track with me on this, it turns on every time you say that someone should do something, or it turns on every time you say that someone shouldn't do something, or they shouldn't have done that. Every time you say, that was right, or any time you say, no, 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 that was wrong, that's when the tape recorder fires up. And that's when it captures whatever it is that you say after that. Right? So this is 90 days of this. This happens. Three months, it happens. Right and wrong, should and should not, ought and ought not do that. 90 days, it captures what you are saying about these things. Then, after, right, 12 weeks, you come into the courtroom. And the judge takes the the tape recorder, and he hits play. And evidence of your law booms in the courtroom. This is nobody else's law. This is your law. This is what you say should be done and shouldn't be done. This is what you say is right and what you say is wrong. 
So your law is now on display in the courtroom. And then the judge calls the witnesses from your life over the last 90 days. And one by one, your spouse, your father, your mother, your, your kids, oh, my, my sons, get on the stand. Your coworkers, your employees, if you're a boss, your boss, if you are an employee, they get on the stands and they present evidence. And the question is, how many of us would win that trial? And I will be the first one in this room to say that I would fail miserably. That the verdict against me in my life, based on my own law, would be guilty as charged. Do you know how many things every single day I tell my children not to do that then I go and do? <laughs> oh, it's more than I'd want to admit. The point is that we can't even stand up to our own scrutiny. We can't even save ourselves on the basis of our own law. For just 90 days, we would be guilty as charged. So what are we? We're guilty. What are we? We are deserving of judgment. That's where Paul ends, right? He starts dead, and you were dead. Where does he end verse 3? Wrath, judgment. He starts verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses, and where does he end verse 3? Children of wrath. And then what happens in verse 4? But God. But God. We've already seen that. We've already seen how good those two words are. You were dead in your trespasses, but God raised us to new life. That's what grace does to us. We were children of wrath, deserving of God's judgment. But God. But God delivered us from wrath to what? To mercy. Oh, there's some mercy. The first two words of this verse are so good, we might, we might be in danger of losing the rest of it. Don't lose the rest of it. What, is, what does this verse say about God? It says he is what? It says he is rich in mercy. I said this a few weeks ago. Nobody is richer than God. And this is true in a bunch of different senses, too. Like, God's got all of it. Like, materially, we think we own some stuff. We don't. It's all God. Psalm 24.1 says, I love this. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Like, materially, it all belongs to God. But spiritually, do you know that God is also rich? It's not just materially. It is also spiritually, and God possesses an abundance of spiritual resources. Grace is one of those. That's the main idea of today's sermon because it's, I think, the main idea of this text. Grace is a spiritual resource that God provides, but, but Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.4 that mercy is also a spiritual resource that God has and provides. Grace and mercy. And let's, let's remember the nuance between those two things, right? Grace, grace is getting the good gift that you didn't deserve, Grace is getting the good gift that you didn't deserve, while mercy is not getting, mercy is not getting the bad judgment and punishment that you do deserve, which is why he ties those two ideas together. We are children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy, we deserve wrathful judgment, but instead, because of God's mercy, we don't get it. Because of God's mercy, we don't get it. Grace and mercy, both spiritual resources that God our Father possesses in spades because he is rich. He is rich. Um, 
A few years ago, we were wrapping up our time at the Brookside campus. We were transitioning, preparing to transition to our calling in central Kansas. Uh, And I experienced in one moment with one person, with one story, uh, both abundant grace and abundant mercy. Uh, Right at the zenith of the stress, right? It's like the high point of trying to sell our house, of trying to wrap up my time, prepare for this big move. We're wrestling with all of this. My car dies. That's how it always goes, isn't it? Like when it rains, it pours. There's a reason why. That's a cliche. So my car is dead. I'm already like over the top, you know, like a level 11 stress. And I call my dad because that's what I do when I have car trouble, right? I get on the horn with David Brandis and I'm just, I'm just venting to him, right? I'm not expecting him to solve the problem. I just need to talk to my dad because I'm stressed and my car died. And my dad, he says to me, he says, well, Paul, I sort of figured this day was coming with your car. <laughs> I knew that it was more or less on its last legs, So your mom and I, we've already been talking, and we would like to give you my car. It's not like my dad runs a car lot, right? They've got two cars. He's like, we would like to give you my car. It'd be too stressful for you to have to to buy a car during this season. And right, I'm blown away by this kindness of grace. I had no idea that this was coming. Didn't expect it, didn't deserve it. This is just an incredible gift from my dad and my mom. I mean, that's grace, isn't it? I don't deserve that, but I get it. We don't deserve that, but we get it. That is the grace of my parents in this moment towards us. He drives down the car to me. We meet at the Kansas City airport. He hands me the keys, the title, everything. Just here it is, son. Gets on an airplane and flies back to the Chicagoland area. That's grace. Friends, not even a week later, I got into a car accident in that car. (laughs) And it was still in my dad's insurance. (laughs) And it was my fault. It was just a fender bender, right? <laughs> You're with me. So I call my dad, and I'm so nervous. I'm so ashamed. Honestly, right, do you live in this space with me? I'm disgusted with myself. Like, that's where I was in this moment. And do you know how my father receives me? With nothing more than kind mercy. I deserve condemnation. I deserve judgment. I deserved wrath. <laughs> Paul, don't worry about it. Happens to all of us. Really, really. No, no, no. You can't pay us for the increase in our insurance premiums. That's, I'm asking. I'm like, hey, can I just like, let me know how much it is. We'll figure it out. He's like, no, no, you can't do that. Your mother and I, we've got it. This is grace and this is mercy. Do you see? Do you see? And my father, he possesses them both in abundance. He is rich in these things. That's my earthly father. How much more my heavenly father? possesses both grace and mercy towards me and towards you. Like what I have done against my heavenly father is way worse than a fender bender in his 2011 Toyota Camry, is it not? It is. It is. Do you see these two ideas together, verses 4 and verses 7 on our screen? But God being rich in mercy, that's verse 4, jump to verse 7. God raised us up so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable what? Riches of what? Of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, God is rich in mercy and rich in grace. So much so that our sentence has been commuted. We were dead, but now we are alive. We were deserving of wrath, but now we have been granted mercy. And this happened not because we got our act together. 
This happened not because we argued our way out of it. This happened not because some evidence was presented that proved our innocence. This happened not because somehow there was a mistrial that was declared. No, 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 this happened because, look back at the screen, let's put it back on here, the last three highlighted words. Why did this happen? In Christ Jesus is why this happened. This happened because Jesus stood in our place. This happened because Jesus said, hey, me for you, my perfection for your imperfection, my sinlessness for your many, many sins. This happened because Jesus took our punishment, Jesus took our judgment, and Jesus took the sentence that you and I deserved. We didn't, he didn't deserve it. We did. But he took it from death to life from wrath to mercy, but that's not all. Grace happens to us, raises us from death to life, it rescues us from wrath to mercy, and it delivers us from empty works to good works. It delivers us from empty works to good works. This entire passage is extraordinary. I just cannot get over where it ends. It's already good, right? It's already top five. It's just amazing. But look where this all ends. Look where this all ends. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Instead, it is the gift of God. This is not a result of works, just in case you missed it, so that no one may boast. Man, when we, when we work, when we work, we boast about our work, don't we? Verse 10. This is so curious, the tension of all this. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Instead, for, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, do you see the contrast and the clash that's happening in these verses between the two different types of work? You've been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, and yet, we are God's what? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Do you feel the tension with me? It's like, how do you hold all that together? This is actually a beautiful... This is, this is the tension of how Christianity is different than all other world religions. This right here in these three verses is the tension of how Christianity is different. Because in most religions and worldviews, salvation comes through works. Do this, don't do this, follow this rule, follow that rule, and bingo, you're doing okay. Like you're in, you're done, you're, you're saved. But for followers of Jesus, this operates wholly differently. In Christ, we are saved from our empty works, but also for works. From empty works that can't save us and only make us boast, but we are saved for genuinely good works that truly bless and transform the world around you. Follow this, right? Grace rips us up out of the grave and raises us to new life. Grace, it comes over here where we deserve wrath and judgment, and it delivers us from that. It rescues us from that by way of mercy, Right? It does both of those things, and it also allows us to live and walk and operate in freedom. Because when you try to raise yourself from the dead, you fail. And when you try to, when you try to work your way out of the judgment that is upon you, you fail. 
You can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us can do it. We have failed over and over and over again. So grace comes in. It just tears down that project. It tears down our attempts to do that. And it frees us. It frees us. Because you don't have to do that anymore. Now you can do some different stuff. Grace allows us to walk and live in freedom. But oh, we got to be careful with that word freedom, don't we? Because you hear freedom, I hear freedom, and we're like, cool, I get to do whatever I want. That's what freedom is today, is it not? It's a, it's a I do what I want when I want to do it card. Is that true freedom? No, we talked about this back in John 8. There Jesus says that the truth will set you free, but he also seems to imply in John 8 that there are false forms of freedom. And friends, we in our cultural moment are addicted to the false form of freedom that says, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's freedom. And no one else can tell me that it's not. That's not freedom. That's a sneaky form of slavery. True freedom is living in the way you were designed to live. True freedom is is not trying to save yourself with empty works. True freedom is right, is, is, is walking out in the midst of the genuinely good works that bless your neighbors and transform the world around us. Walking in this freedom protects us from what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Oh, may our grace never be cheap. May we never forget the high cost that was paid to free you from death, to free you from the wrath that you deserved, how high a cost was that? And yet we're over here cheaply denigrating it, cheaply living in this false form of freedom. May our grace never be cheap. May grace, genuine transforming grace, take us from this place of empty works and put us to a spot. What what, what does Paul say? That we are his workmanship. In the Greek, uh, underneath the hood on that one, it's the, it's the word poema. That sound familiar? Poem, right? You could say that we are God's majestic poem to the world, which is a beautiful idea, but, but I actually wonder if there's a better illustration and image for us. I wonder if a Stradivarius violin would be a little better than, than a poem. And part of why I think this is true is because this is beautiful just looking at it, isn't it? Think about the the care, intention, and design that went into creating this rare and beautiful violin. I actually, like, I love just looking at that. I think that that violin, in the creation of it, in its existence, and even in this picture here in this room, I think that's a work of art. But do you know what else I like to do? I like to listen to it. Let's watch. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. You, 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 
You, me, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what grace has made you. Now, what does this look like on a daily basis? What does Ephesians 2.10 look like on a daily basis? Well, certainly it involves loving our neighbors and performing acts of kindness and mercy to those we meet. But I actually believe that the vision in these verses is a bit larger and grander than we often give it credit for. We must not be shallow or myopic or small about what God has in mind with the phrase good works. Because I believe that God has all of our Monday lives in view with this reality that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I mean, right after all, what does he say? At the end of this verse, he says we are created to do what? To walk in them. Do you notice the inclusio? In verse 1, he said we were walking in what? Sins and trespasses. But what are we doing in verse 10? We're walking in good works. And, and, and the walking that we were doing in our sins and trespasses, it was so comprehensive that it led to our death. So there also, how, much, how, how comprehensive does our good works need to be for us to walk in them in that way? This is about every moment of your entire life. That's what's on view here in Ephesians 2.10. That's what's on view. As you're walking throughout the whole of your life, ask the question, what good work can you be doing in the world? What good work can you be doing in the world? And this is probably obvious, right? The job that you work at, whether it's paid or unpaid, the job you work at should be part of this. It's not all that Paul had in mind, but it is baked into it. And when followers of Jesus catch the vision that the jobs that they are doing, that the work that they do in their jobs and their careers, when followers of Jesus catch the vision that that is part of Ephesians 2.10, when they start putting those two things together, it's, it's extraordinary. One more video. Let's take a look. September of 2017, I was diagnosed with a rare condition that um, completely rocked my world. A while ago, when we joined the church, we attended the first service and sat behind us was a lovely couple who we got to know because we'd turn around and talk at the end of a service and, and learn a little bit about their family and their jobs and their life at Christ Community. I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for 25 years. Uh, so what we do is help bring these new medications and treatment options to patients that have various conditions and disease states. It's one of those highly regulated industries with tight timelines, and that work is stressful, probably a lot like yours as well. I don't know how we got into conversation, but I was probably wearing a mask in church before the days of everyone wearing a mask. And Bart had asked me, you know, are you okay? Is everything okay? So I was in one of those uh, moments, uh, call it a valley of despair a few years back. I was praying that God would help me through this, uh, you know, try to help rediscover that renewed sense of meaning in my work. Um, and he provided just one random Sunday morning uh, a conversation with Mike and Joe Barr, and we discovered that Joe was fighting 
uh, one of these rare medical conditions with, with few treatment options. I had just been told about a month before that my disease was recurring and that I needed to go back into treatment. And walking out of the ASH um, Wednesday service, they came towards us and he saw my mask again and asked, how are you doing, what's going on? And I said, well, I had a recurrence and I'm back in treatment. And he obviously said, sorry to hear that. What are, what are you taking? And of course, miracle of miracles and God's work and the amazing connection that he had made, it was the drug, the actual drug that Bart had been working on all these years. But I do just remember, you know, those emotions of thankfulness for that immediate sense of purpose that God provided. You could really see God's hand in that moment. We don't know the impact of our work as we do it on a daily basis. It does matter, and it matters that Bart was doing what he was doing, even if he was getting discouraged because he hadn't seen any results or hadn't had any real encouragement. And then God comes along and says, well, I'll show you some encouragement. Here's something that you can see that is a reason why your work matters. That's Ephesians 2.10. Bard is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, good works at his work that directly blessed and benefited Jobar, who is also God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what grace does. May it never be cheap. It raises you from death to life. It rescues you from wrath to mercy. It delivers you from empty works to good works. And church, it unites you to Jesus Christ forever. We've seen this already, right? It unites you to Jesus Christ forever. It's most clear. It's all over this passage. It's all over the entire book of Ephesians. This, I think, is the, the sort of uniting idea within Ephesians, is it unites you and us to Christ Jesus and to one another forever. But, but look again at verse 7. God raised us up so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace unites us to Jesus forever. Right now in this moment, Christ hides you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And so when God sees you, he sees Jesus. What that means is that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. What that means is that whatever Jesus has done, you have done. What that means is that whatever Jesus has, you have. Wherever Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father, in a spiritual sense, you're there because of Christ Jesus, because grace unites us to Jesus forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for grace, amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Thank you for all that grace does, and may we remember the high cost that you and Jesus paid so that it might be true of us, so that all of this might be true of us. And may that grace in Christ Jesus never be cheap, Father. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.